Well, good morning and welcome. Pastor Chuck, our teaching elder and pastor, announced last week that uh, he was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. Um, And so as uh, David prayed, he will be starting uh, chemo this week and uh, radiation. So please keep him in your prayers. Um, And I suspect as he goes through the uh, treatment and the surgery, uh, you will probably be seeing a little bit more of us, the, uh, uh, the ruling elders. And so for that reason, because Chuck is not here, we will not be having uh, communion. And that uh, um, hopefully that will uh, remind you of how much you miss it. And uh, just kind of remind you of uh, the priority and the importance that the PCA church places on communion. And that only teaching elders uh, are allowed uh, to... Uh, administer the table. And also, um, I'd mentioned that although we're not having Sunday school, we are, uh, we did this a couple years ago. We were sharing testimonies to allow you to get to know uh, people in the church. And uh, we're doing it a little differently, a little bit of a a twist. Normally, um, folks share their their story, uh, much like Paul did before King Agrippa. You know, this was my life before Christ. This is how I became a Christian. This is how this is how I understood the gospel in my life afterward. We're doing it a little differently in that we're doing kind of a interview. Uh, and so David uh, Fickett, uh, yeah, one of the other um, ruling elders, and his lovely wife Carol, we will be inter- you know sitting in the hot seat uh, today. So after you, um, our little break and fellowship time, please stay for that. Also, because of the um, uh, you know, myself, David Fickett, and Ugo, where is Ugo? There he is, uh, ruling elders. Um, this past year was our first opportunity to stand in the pulpit. And I really want to thank my fellow elders and, of course, Pastor Chuck for allowing me uh, to fill in. It's a very weighty place to stand in, as you can imagine. Uh, and um, uh, because we're not seminary trained, uh, we probably uh, will bite off more than we can chew, uh, as you'll see today. Um, so uh, instead of a three-point outline, I think I have about a six-point outline and a lot of scripture to cover. Uh, but uh, it is a privilege to open up uh, for you today God's holy word. I want to continue to... Um, open and elucidate for you uh, this whole idea of the new covenant. I think it's so important. We hear the word gospel, but we often don't associate that with the new covenant. And it's important to understand the new covenant, the news and the details of, of what God has done for his people and through his people from the Old Testament. You know, Paul was immersed in the Old Testament. You look at Romans alone, he quoted the Old Testament or referenced the Old Testament over 70 times. And uh, many of that was from the book of Isaiah. So if you want to get a good handle on the gospel, on the new covenant, you need to have a thorough understanding of the Old Testament. And so this uh, and the the several times that I preached last year, these are really just... um, from my own personal reading, and so anyone here can do the same. In fact, I've often was was often told if you are feeding your soul, if you are feeding yourself regularly from God's holy word, uh, and sustaining yourself 
preaching the gospel to yourself every day, and, uh, and, and people have different ways of doing that. You know, you spend time in the scriptures. I love to go running, or I go swimming, and that's my time to think and talk to myself and uh, to the Lord. You should be able to feed yourself and then feed your family, feed others with what you glean from God's holy word. So I mentioned that uh, the Old Covenant from the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, we know, covers and mentions and explains the Old Covenant, which was a covenant of works, uh, which didn't go away. Okay? Um, And I'll talk a little bit more about that. The Old Testament covers the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the Old Covenant formula was this. If you will do this, this is the Lord speaking, if you do this, I will do this. If you will do something, I will do something. That's the old covenant. And you need to understand that. Uh, Simply because a lot of modern Christianity is still stuck in the old covenant. If you will do this, I will do this. And and a lot of modern Christianity still is still couched in those terms, both in terms of salvation. If you will only repent, if you will only believe, then you will be redeemed and saved. And in terms of sanctification, you hear it all the time. You hear it all the time on the radio when you listen to uh, sermons. If you see a big if in front of some sort of proposition, think Old Covenant. If you'll just be faithful... If you will just be obedient, God will bless you. So the old covenant formula was, if you will obey me, I will be your God and you will be my people or else you will be cursed. So I think if you read the Old Testament and if you will look at three phases and three things, it'll help you understand the Old Testament. And so these three steps are, first of all, if you obey me, if you obey me fully, if you obey me completely and faithfully, obey my laws, my statutes, I will bless you and I will be your God and you will be my people. Of course, you have to do it what? Completely, right? The next phase that you will see as you read through your Old Testament is what? If step one was obey, 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 guess what step two was? Repent, repent, repent. Because nobody can do step one, right? They never did. God's own people never did. And then I preached on Hosea, which I think was the nail in the coffin of the Old Covenant. And what was it? As, as articulated through Hosea's, the naming of his own children, you're not my people and I'm not your God and I don't love you because you've been unfaithful. And so you, that is the Old Covenant. And it's important, of course, interspersed, between the Old Covenant is the New Covenant, which is beautiful, clear reference to the New Covenant, where the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to do something completely new, completely different, completely unexpected, and completely illogical. I'm going to make a New Covenant with you because you can't keep the old one. It wasn't given to be kept. I'm going to, of course, discipline sin in your life, but I will not destroy you. I will save a few. I will not save everyone, but I will save a few. I will win you back. I'll win back my unfaithful wife. The father will run to the disobedient son. I will make a new covenant. And the new covenant formula is I will be your God 
and you will be my people. I will, therefore you will. And then, and only then, will you repent and sing. It's a beautiful formula. And, um, and so true biblical repentance, you will all, always hear that from this pulpit. True biblical repentance always follows true, uh, true forgiveness. True repentance always follows true forgiveness. Um, and so that's what you will hear week in and week out, every week from this pulpit in this church. You will hear the cross of Christ. I'm amazed. If some of the t- I listen to Christian radio a lot, and I'm amazed at a lot of the sermons that I hear on the radio. Everything from how to walk in wisdom, how to be discerning, to how to greet people at church. And I think to myself, I can listen to these sermons and never hear the mention of Christ once. And so, um, uh, we don't, we, you won't hear sermons like that here. Principles of Christian living. Life application. You won't hear it. And it's by design. Uh, and I think we're in good company. Because St. Paul said, you know what, Corinthians? I purpose to know nothing among you except what? Christ crucified. So I want to do something that's a bit difficult. I want to give you an overview of the second half of the book of Isaiah. How do you like that? In 25 minutes. As I said, we're, we're not seminary trained, so we can plead a, a little bit of ignorance on how to do this. So, the book of Isaiah is really a, a picture of the courtroom, and uh, where the Lord himself thunders into the courtroom as the divine judge, he's the jury, he's the prosecution, and he is the defense, all wrapped up in one. And, um, you know, I've always been intrigued by lawyer movies, uh, ever since I was little. You know, I ended up becoming an engineer, but I was always intrigued by lawyer movies. Watching Perry Mason in the 50s, right? Well, I wasn't, I was born in the 59, but, uh, so there's, they still play it today, right? Perry Mason in the 50s, of course, To Kill a Mockingbird in the 60s, you know? I, I, I even talked to uh, someone who was spurred to become a lawyer by watching To Kill a Mockingbird. And Justice for All in the 70s. There's something about the pursuit of truth and justice. Seeing justice administered is always, I think, intrigued me. Not so much mercy, but justice, right? That's the way we run. Um, if you ask my children what is one of my favorite movies, <laughs> what would they say? What, do you, what would you guys uh, I know what you would say. You can ask them. One of my favorite movies uh, is A Few Good Men, right? A Few Good Men. I love that movie. And uh, I don't know if it has, uh, partly has something to do with uh, uh, the fact that it's a Navy and Marine Corps movie. I'm going on my 37th year in the, uh, in the Navy Reserve. But famous line from that movie, right? Colonel Nathan Jessup, he's thundering between him and Tom Cruise, which is the uh, defense attorney. And what does he say? He says, you want answers? And what does Tom Cruise say? I want the truth. And what does, uh, what does uh, the colonel say? says, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. And I, and I just love that line. I think uh, it really resonates. But uh, why do we love that? Why do we love that line so much? I think it's because we really can't handle the truth. Uh, we really can't. We meaning mankind, apart from the saving grace of God, we cannot handle the truth. And we are naturally averse to the truth, whether... 
uh, it comes from parents, whether it comes from nature, or whether it comes from the direct from the lips of the living God, we cannot handle the truth. Uh, we don't recognize it. Uh, we consistently deny it, or we trade it in for something else. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter one. He says the expression of the rejection of God's truth manifests itself um, initially with unthankfulness and culminates in the rejection of our very nature, even our natural gender makeup. We reject that. And so in Proverbs, I mean, in Romans one, he says we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So in Isaiah, we see the Lord issues indictments against his people. He catalogs in detail their offenses, uh, breaking his laws, and then he comes to their defense. And so we're going to see a courtroom as we walk through this morning the book of Isaiah. It's really fascinating. He's going to summon several witnesses to the witness stand. He's going to grill them with questions, most of them rhetorical, which means they're pretty obvious. They can't, they can't even answer them. And then he's going to hand out a sentence in a very unexpected way. Uh, most of you know and have heard that the book of Isaiah is often referred to as a mini Bible. right? 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New and if you look at the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it's a picture of the Old Testament. It's a picture of the Old Covenant. It's a picture of judgment. When you look to chapter 40, you start seeing, and 40 to 66, you see a beautiful picture of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. And no other book draws a beautiful picture of the suffering servant of Christ. And so... That's the context. Let me give you a little background of the book of Isaiah. Of, uh, Isaiah. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. He preached from 740 to 681. He foretold the fall of the northern kingdom and the, uh, and the destruction of its capital city, Samaria, by the Assyrians in 722. Uh, he lived at the same time as Hosea. So Hosea was up in the north preaching to the Israel while Isaiah was in the south preaching to the house of Judah. In chapter 6, Isaiah himself is ushered into the very presence of God before his throne. And just by virtue of being there, he's convicted and convinced of his sin, and he is forgiven and pardoned on the spot. Not only is he forgiven, but he's cleansed, and he is commissioned to proclaim a message. Most of you have read Isaiah chapter 6. You know, he hears in the, in the throne room of God, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me, I will go. Okay, good. We're going to commission you, Isaiah. And here is your message to the people. Out of Isaiah chapter 6. Though you hear my words repeatedly, you will not understand them. This is the message that Isaiah was to proclaim to the people. Though you hear my words repeatedly, you won't understand them. Though you watch and watch as I perform my miracles, you still won't know what they mean. Dull their hearts, the Lord says. Dull their understanding. Close their ears and shut their eyes. I don't want them to see. 
I don't want them to hear and I don't want them to understand or turn to me to heal them. How would you like to be presented with that's your message? What happened to God is on our side. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, this is what we're going to look at this morning. The outline, we're going to focus on uh, chapters 40 to 44. Uh, We're going to look at the indictment, the charges that uh, he makes against his people. It's really, think think of it as the prosecution's opening statement. We're going to look at the defense uh, opening statement as well. We're going to look at the irrefutable evidence. We're going to look at the witness stand, who he puts on the witness stand. We're going to look at the uh, who he pardons and who he doesn't pardon. We're, then we're going to close with the true and faithful witness and his sentence. And so the prosecutor's opening statement is right up in the front of Isaiah. It's interesting. Most people would expect Isaiah to start with, like most books, You know, Isaiah wrote this under the reign of so-and-so. That's chapter 6. But the first five chapters are really um, really the, the, the prosecution that the Lord has, the case that the Lord makes against his people. So uh, I'm reading in Isaiah, and I'm reading from the NIV. So if you're following along in the church ESV, I apologize. I just prefer NIV. So reading from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, this is the prosecutor's opening statement hear the word of god hear me you heavens listen earth for the lord has spoken i reared children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me the ox knows its master and the donkey its owner its owner's manger but israel does not know my people do not understand Verse 4, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. That's the indictment that God places against his people. Fast forward now to chapter 40, uh, where the Lord, the divine judge, enters the courtroom and instead of a harsh proclamation of well-deserved judgment, the Lord opens with tender words, with words of comfort to His people. And this is so fitting as you consider that really chapter 40 mirrors the New Testament. So so jump over to, uh, turn to Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord, the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries out, and I, a voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, 
because of the breath because the breath of the Lord blows on them surely the people are grass the grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of our God endures forever you who bring good news to Zion go up on a mountain you who bring good news to Jerusalem lift up your voice with a shout lift it up do not be afraid say to the towns of Judah here is your God see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. And it's interesting that knowing that his people are guilty of idolatry, now the Lord lays out the evidence through a a series of questions. So follow me if you will. Uh, their continued reading, he says, Who who measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord or his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? Or showed him the path of understanding. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals even enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom will you compare God? To what will you liken him? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princesses to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither away as a whirlwind sweeps them like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Verse 25. Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. The Lord says, you want to compare me to something? What are you going to compare me to? You're going to make an image of me? What is it going to look like? You want some evidence? You want some proof? You know what he says? He says, look up. Just look up. Verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. You know, I've told you before that I'm fascinated by cosmology and I love reading about it. You know, you can go in any one of six degrees of freedom. You can go in any one of six directions from this earth. You can go forward, back, left, right, up, down. And you can travel through space for eternity. Because God created them that way. You're not going to hit a boundary. You're not going to hit the edge of space somewhere. I think it's interesting, and you can do that, at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second. 
because God created it that way. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the news lately has been on what? The New Horizons spacecraft, right? Launched that went to Pluto, the farthest planet in our own solar system. You know when we launched that? 2006. took nearly 10 years for an object the size of this grand piano traveling at 36,000 miles an hour just to reach Pluto. It would take, at that speed, that new horizons, it would take it 80,000 years just to reach our nearest sun, our nearest star, Alpha Centauri, 26 trillion miles away. Take almost 2 billion years just to get across our little Milky Way galaxy. And there's billions of galaxies in the universe. So the judge thunders to the his people, how do you plead? Does the accused have anything to say? Look at verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, quote, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will, they will walk and not faint. That's just Isaiah chapter 40. In the next chapter, Isaiah 41, the Lord calls his first witness to the witness stand. So the prosecution may call its first witness. And in the first verse of Isaiah 41, the Lord calls the islands or the nations to the witness stand. And he says, renew their strength, bring on, which basically means bring on your strongest argument. Get ready. So Isaiah 41, the Lord says, be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us speak together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? Now remember, Isaiah prophesied 150 years before this king of Persia would come and before the fall to Babylon. 150 years. That would be like somebody back in 1865 telling you what's going to happen in 2015. So who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him. He's talking about Cyrus. He calls him his servant, my anointed one. And he says later, he says, but you know what? He doesn't even know I anointed him. He doesn't, in fact, he doesn't even know me, but, he's, but I've anointed him. His, he hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust and his sword to windblown chaff with his bow. And the prosecution has just one question for this witness in verse 4. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? Who? Who's done this? He says, I, the Lord, the first and the last am He. I have done this. Your idols couldn't tell you this. You can't read about this in your horoscope. It's not going to tell you what I'm going to do. Only I can do this. And then the Lord does something really interesting in verse 21. He calls the idols to the witness stand. 
In verse 21, he, said, he says, Present your case as the Lord set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols. Tell us. What's going to happen? Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so that we may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad. Do anything. So that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Verse 24, he says, But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. And he goes on to say, I've stirred up one from the north. And um, so the prosecution now, and let's jump over to Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to come back to Isaiah 42 in a minute. The prosecution calls his own people to the witness stand in in Isaiah 43, starting in verse 1. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Notice the Lord's promise here. He does not say, if you pass through the waters. He does not say, if you pass through the fire. What does He say? When, you know, you've heard, uh, you've heard from the pul- this pulpit, especially from Chuck, uh, the disdain for bumper sticker theology, right? If God is my co-pilot, you know, if, of course, if God is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. In fact, I think you boarded the wrong plane. If God is your co-pilot, um, but uh, another one that uh, I've heard often uh, is God will not give you more than you can handle. And I'm here to tell you that God will give you routinely more than you can handle. And He will do that to remind you that He is more than you can handle. Just look up. That's what He says. Just look at the universe. You can't even get your mind around that. Fuses start blowing when you consider the enormity of the creation of God. And He'll give you more than you can handle to drive you to the cross which represents more than you can handle. To bring you to the end of yourself so that you can see someone who did endure, who endured more than he could handle for our sake. And that bumper sticker theology. Tell that to your pastor who was just diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. God won't give you more than you can handle. He will. And He does. And so... Uh, If He only gave us what we could handle, what would we do? We'd handle it, right? We'd handle it and we'd pat ourselves on the back. So, does the witness have anything to present or say before the verdict is read? Look at Isaiah 43.20. The Lord says, The wild animals honor Me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Verse 22, Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. 
You have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I really haven't burdened you with grain offerings or wearied you with demands for incense. You've not brought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. You haven't given me anything. But I tell you what you have given me and what you have brought before me. Look there in in that same verse. But you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. That's the only thing we are capable of bringing to God. Our sin. And before he reads verse 25, imagine him saying, Will the accused please stand for the reading of the verdict? Verse 25, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. You can't. You know why? Look at verse 27. Your father sinned. Your spokesman. He rebelled against me. We're children of Adam. He was our spokesman. And he sinned. And so you look at this court decision and you think, how could the Lord do this? How could He pardon the most hardened of criminals? How could He blot out His people's sins? The prosecution calls His servant to the witness stand. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 42. And read. Here you hear these words. Here is my servant. Whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit in him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Verse 5, this is what God the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretched them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. He's referring to his servant. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Does the witness have anything to say? What does the servant say? Jump over to Isaiah chapter 50 in verse 5. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. 
Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? The faithful one. The obedient one. This was written 700 years before Christ had His torturous death. Will the faithful and true witness stand while the verdict is read? Isaiah 53, He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing is in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held Him in low esteem. Surely, He took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so He did not open His mouth. The innocent one, the one called in the book of Revelation, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, This is the verdict. You will be hung on a cross until you are dead. Do you have anything to say? Isaiah says he did not open his mouth. But he did. He did not open his mouth to proclaim his innocence. But he did open his mouth on that cross. To cry out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? You see, this is why the Lord who created the heavens can blot out your transgression and blot out mine. And I know they are great. Because of Him. Are you in Christ? Have you realized... And seeing the reality of the new creation? Are you have you experienced and experiencing on a regular basis the promise of the new covenant? I will be your God and you will be my people. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord God, that You have ordained before the creation of the world a Savior. Not a method, not a plan, but a person to take our sins. The perfect, unblemished Lamb of God who takes away our sin. We thank You. We thank You for Your precious Son, We thank You for the precious promise, the pardon 
that we receive through Christ, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the reality of the new birth, the reality of the new creation. And Lord, although, although we hear the, the cries of the old master, we know that we are free. We know that we have been given your spirit. We know that we have been forgiven. We've been given the very mind of Christ. Help us to live it, to walk in a manner worthy of, that pleases you in all we do through your strength. In his name, the name above all names, Amen.